welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast, where we talk about times that the Scriptures became real to us and brought more power into our lives as a result. And we hope it does the same for you. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm really excited about our guest today. Today we're going to visit with uh, Dr. Philip Allred, or, or Phil Allred, who is uh, at BYU-Idaho, was recently the department chair there. And uh, I, I know Phil from some assignments we had together and so on, but uh, uh, the place where I really came to know and love Phil is as we taught together at the Jerusalem Center, uh, BYU Jerusalem Center in Jerusalem, uh, where we really just became brothers. And uh, you, you have such a wonderful opportunity to really get to know someone there. And I uh, already suspected, but I came to know fully what a man of God Phil is. Uh, my whole family feels the same way. I don't know anyone who is better at teaching the teachings of the, the prophets and incorporating them into scripture study. Uh, he knows the scriptures well, but he's just a good, good man, and uh, I, I admire and love being with him. So welcome, Phil. Wow, what an intro. I, how do I live up to that, Carrie? Thank uh, you. <laughs> well, your wife wrote it for me. But, uh, there we no, go. Just, Perfect. <laughs> we, we both also have wives who are better than we are. But um, oh my! Uh, anyway, no. I, I, just glad to have you with us. Uh, it's an honor. Thank you, Carrie. So uh, today we're going to let Phil talk about whatever it is he would uh, like to talk about. Just some times that the scriptures came to life for you. So, uh, and we'll probably have more than we can talk about in one setting. So we might do one or two stories here. We'll just see, and, and we'll maybe have you back on another time if we can twist your arm hard enough. But why don't you just start out and, and tell us, uh, uh, at least start by with one story that you feel uh, is something that really came to life for you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Yes, I remember um, being so impressed with uh, Abraham, and <clears throat> as we all are, and, and his wife, Sarah, and their experiences. And as I started to get more serious about studying the scriptures, and I just became so amazed. It's kind of like the reverse Waldo, you know, the, the little pictures where it's, it's uh, find Waldo and it's really hard to find him. It's, it's like the opposite with Abraham and Sarah. It's like, it doesn't matter where you go in the scriptures, you, you can't not see Abraham. Even right. in the temple, of course, it's just remarkable where where he and his family show up. And so it just, in fact, I, I remember noticing that and then appreciating uh, particularly a, a statement that Robert Millet had made in the Enzyme some years ago. And he, he uh, and I'll quote him because there's nobody like Bob, uh, but he said, Moses, the Lord's lawgiver, the author of the Pentateuch, right? The five books of Moses constructed his scriptural narrative in such a way as to lead the reader quickly through the creation, the fall, the flood, the scattering of the nations, through the confounding of tongues. And he says, by the time we've covered just 10 chapters in Genesis, that's, that's just 15 pages in our LDS edition of the King James Version, we discover that more than 2,000 years has elapsed since the fall. And, and, and then he says, it's as though Moses were eager to move the reader without delay to a certain part or point in history. That point in time is the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, you know, it, back in the day when we had our paper scriptures out more often, perhaps, than we do today, it's fun to just kind of literally get a hold of the pages 
and see yeah. just this little sliver of 15 pages and we've covered that much ground and then we get to Abraham and it slows way down and uh, and it's pretty it's pretty cool so I just I I want to share maybe a few things that uh, I'm still learning about Abraham that have impressed me particularly in regards to my own discipleship and what the contours of our discipleship look like because they're certainly surprising. They were surprising for Abraham. They're certainly gonna be surprising for us. And uh, I hope that uh, in our visit that uh, we'll have the spirit guide and direct each of us uh, about how that discipleship um, is right in line. Uh, even though we're, we're probably at times quite sure that we're the, we're the weird ones, we're out of order or unaligned. In fact, as we compare our lives to Abraham's, we realize, oh my word, uh, maybe I'm not so strange <laughs> as I may, may have thought. Maybe I'm I'm right in the flow uh, because of our wonderful ancient patriarch and matriarch. Sounds sounds perfect. And and I have to agree with you um, that th- th- I, I had it explained to me once this way uh, when I was in grad school, and it was a statement that I really loved. Uh, you know, the, the scriptures are really the story of the house of Israel. And in many ways, that, that story begins with Moses and the Exodus. And so some people call Genesis the prologue to the rest of the Old Testament, right? Genesis is to get you to where you understand how we got in the situation where Israel is born as a nation in Egypt and during the Exodus. Um, but this, this scholar that I was uh, uh, working with once, he said, but I think that the first 10 chapters of Genesis are the prologue to the prologue. The point of it is just to get you to Abraham because the story really begins with Abraham, and it does. You, you go from these vast, sweeping cosmic stories, creation, creation of humanity, fall, scattering of humanity, and then suddenly, and this one guy and his family and all the rest of scriptures are the story of this guy and his family. And and I, I think that's fantastic, and, and that's not a mistake. There, there could have been lots of people chosen, but Abraham— the person is such a person that I, I think he is intended to serve as a role model, and he did for all of Israel, and should continue to serve as a role model for us as we as the covenant was reestablished with him, and as we try to be covenant keepers, we should look to Abraham as a role model. And so I'm excited to hear you help us do that. Well, you know, it, it, it's awesome, and the president, uh, to to your points about the prologue of the prologue, President Nelson has probably been. Uh, the one uh, modern prophet in, in our days that has spoken about Abraham uh, more than any other. And yeah. uh, it, it's remarkable how he has, has really focused us, of course, on Israel, but then the patriarch to Israel in Abraham. You know, I, I remember reading the Book of Mormon and, and just being impressed uh, early on with how many references there were to Abraham. And, and in the Book of Mormon kind of uh, way of speaking about it, it's always the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the fullness of Nephi's intent, he tells us what in First Nephi chapter 9, he says, the fullness of my intent, I'm doing the, all of these things, but the fullness of my intent is to bring you to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I remember thinking, he doesn't just say bring us to God. He doesn't just bring us to the Lord, or you know, it's it's the God of these guys. You know, this this right. line, this family line, and then of course with Israel and Moses, then throughout the Book of Mormon, it's it's talks about God and acting in history with the God who brought um, Israelites out of of you know Egypt and the Great Exodus and uh, did so many wonderful historical things with Moses. So so those two come together so beautifully at the beginning of the Old Testament. 
And in the Pearl of Great Price, where maybe we could spend a few of our moments today, you know, we get some insight into why, as you said, Abraham is this great model for us. Because in chapter one of Abraham, uh, right after he's been delivered, which which will go forward on a point I want to make and come back to, uh, once he's delivered, the Lord tells him something very interesting in verse uh, 17, um, and, well, it's 18 and 19. And it kind of explains why Abraham's everywhere, the anti-Waldo. If you look at verse 18, he says, Behold, this is Abraham 1. Behold, I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of uh, thy father, and my power shall be over thee. Then this, as it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. But, so, so he's, a, he's a Noah figure, a bringer of peace, a bringer of, you know, a deliverer of his family, yeah, etc. And a father to but, humanity, but yeah. Exactly, right? But then the next thing is, he's not like Noah in this way. But through thy ministry, meaning Abraham, my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. And, and so when we hear in the Book of Mormon him saying, the God of Abraham, you know, it harkens back to this promise that God made to Abraham once he delivered him. I'm going to be known in the world through your name. And you think about, of course, the, the great three monotheistic religions, so-called monotheistic religions, and, and they all they all harken back and, and are centered in, you know, grounded in, if you will, in Abraham. Yeah, and really all of our scripture, all of it that we have that teaches us about God and how we can come to God, is given to us by Abraham and his descendants. We don't have any, well, the Book of Ether is an abridgment that got stuck in the Book of Mormon that's kind of an exception to that, but not really because we get it through Moroni. So um, so it's not really, right. really an ex exception. All of the scripture that we have comes from Abraham. And, I, and I'm with you. I think that's why so often it's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because uh, they are the ones who help us know about God. That's where the covenant is reestablished. And and that's a phrase that is designed to make us think not only of God, but of the covenant relationship with God and how Abraham is supposed to and his descendants are supposed to spread that covenant uh, throughout the earth. And, and uh, so we have descendants of this family. And so maybe uh, before you go on, I'll just say one other thing. This is something that I learned from you. You may not even know that I fully learned this or, or you may not know how, how I, that I learned this. But um, when we were in Jerusalem together and I'd been teaching. So that was what 2015 is when we started. And I'd started teaching Old Testament at BYU in 1994. So I'd already been teaching uh, Old Testament for 20 years. Uh, and I had written two commentaries on it by this point. I felt like I knew the Old Testament fairly well. And uh, when uh, at the Jerusalem Center, you, you like I taught an Old Testament class and you were teaching another class Old Testament. And then you, you switch and I had your class for the New Testament and you had my Old Testament class for, for the New Testament. So I got this new group of students in and I didn't know you as well yet. And I didn't know how you taught, but I asked them, so... What are some of the things that uh, really stick out to you from uh, from the Old Testament? And every single what, the one thing that every single student said was how this is a story about the family, uh, families, and uh, and so on. And I thought, well, tell me tell me more about that. And you had taught them so well in a way that I'd never recognized or thought through that this is about Abraham. I mean, we have the family of Adam. And that certainly is huge, especially in the book of Moses, not so much in Genesis, but in the book of Moses, you have Noah and his family, but then you get to every, to Abraham and everything is about Abraham and his family and, the, you know, his descendants and family and family and family. 
and how much this is a story about family and how when we say Father Abraham, we really mean that, the father of this family that spreads the covenant. And uh, I think people will be helped as they study the Old Testament to think in terms of what is this teaching is about the family. And I, I learned that from you more than uh, I've learned it from anyone. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, that, I'm so thrilled. That's the spirit teaching for sure, because I, I, I know that's, uh, that's, that's better than I can do. And I'm thrilled that, uh, that they got that and, and I'm learning that. In fact, you know, as we think about this, and thank you for that, Carrie, very kind of you. Um, and, and of course, as, as I would ask students the similar question when I got your students to mine, man, I was taking lists down like, oh, cool. And then when, when I could get you off to the side, I'd ask you, hey, tell me more about this or that. We'd have these great yeah. conversations. And a lot of it was sparked because your students had, yeah. were teaching me. And uh, it's such a beautiful, rich experience. So thank you for that. Well, vice versa. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the fact that um, Abraham is told by the Lord that his name is going to be known through Abraham's ministry suggests kind of that first point that, that we began with, which is um, what do we learn about discipleship with the Lord? So we learned some things about the Lord. We learned some things about ourselves. We learned some things through Abraham about how the Lord and we interact or what we can expect in those interactions. Because I know some of the hardest times in my life um, have been because I misunderstood how discipleship works. I had some assumptions, things that perhaps no one ever told me, or maybe they did. I don't, I don't know exactly, but I was carrying erroneous in, um, expectations, if you will, and, and those kind of cultural uh, or personal ideas uh, really, really were unhealthy. And so when normal discipleship things would happen, challenges, that our mortality is designed to provide us, I would have these uh, expectations cloud my vision. And, and then I would start to become, you know, uh, worried and doubtful and scared, et cetera, you know. And, uh, and so I, I love seeing Abraham's life play out because he provides us, maybe, maybe we can talk about all three of these today, but, but, but just for fun, he provides for me some insight because he was born in such a difficult background. He wasn't born on third base, as they say, yeah. right? That he, he provides uh, insight into uh, the fact that a disciple needs to be a transitional character. And I'm quoting uh, Calfred Broderick, right? The great uh, Latter-day Saint sociologist from USC. And he, he talks about uh, the transitional character. And this is one that takes their generations that have been maybe trending in a poor direction. And they, in one generation, flip that and transition that. Yeah. And Abraham does that so beautifully. Yes. And, he, um, and, and part of that is that he's also uh, reveals another aspect of discipleship, which is, is that through all the difficulties and challenges, he is charitable including and especially to those who have harmed him or appeared to have been aiding and abetting in his potential harm, meaning his father particularly, and how he treats Terah and his father throughout this uh, short narrative in Abraham chapters one and two is really cool and instructive. So he's, he's transitional, he's charitable. And then a third thing among so many we could highlight is that he, he's so steadfast during what we might call uh, the Lord's divine inefficiency. And that's going to sound weird. We never want to attach something negative to the Lord. But if you think about 
efficiency versus inefficiency. The ultimate goal is growth, not just getting from A to B. It's growth and learning. And so in some ways, there's a divine inefficiency in maybe taking a longer route. Talk about Exodus, shall we? You know, for 38 (laughs) years in the wilderness, because it's it's accomplishing what the journey is supposed to accomplish, not just the, the locational change. It's a character change. And so it gets kind of fun where he's faithful and in a sense versatile in his discipleship because he sees the Lord uh, and he's willing to let the Lord do different things with him at different times. Sometimes he'll appear to him. Other times, as we'll highlight in a minute, he doesn't appear to him and appears to be pretty quiet. And so what's, what's he doing? You know, some might misinterpret that easily to think, well, God's unhappy with me or I've done something wrong. When in fact, it's the very thing uh, out of God's love he's doing to bless us and help us. Oh, well, that's, that sounds exciting. Let's dive in. I'm, I'm excited to go through these things with you. Well, cool. So, so you know, the, the initial uh, part about him being a transitional character is is brought out, um, and Carrie, you've done you've done so much work with the Book of Abraham itself. That I've learned so much from you about not overclaiming <laughs> in terms of the facsimiles and where they fit in, and how how they're connected to the narrative that Joseph Smith uh, gives us. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the wonderful work you've done for us and for the whole church and, and many outside the church in understanding some of those complexities as as much as the Lord's allowing us to understand, but. You know, without without conflating a lot of the uncertainty, um, there is that facsimile one that that he talks about in Abraham one that indicates um, in his narrative, you know, some of the gods that were being worshipped, and in the worship of those gods of which his own father had turned his heart to, and he says in verse five, he says, "My fathers." This is Abraham 1 verse 5, my fathers having turned from their righteousness and from the holy commandments, which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice. And of course, then he he is placed in a in a way in the next number of verses, you know, seven, eight, nine through about twelve or so, he's really describing an awful scene of human sacrifice. And some of your earliest um, scholarship is on, you know, ritual violence, right? And and I remember you explaining to me some of some of the amazing things you were finding, and and uh, and so he's he's he describes three virgins that had been three faithful women who had been faithful and had been sacrificed. He describes the fact that uh, a thank offering in verse ten of a child was 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 uh, part of the traditions of the offering that men, women, and children in verse eight are all part of the, the you know ritual sacrifices. So this is so awful, and it's the very kind of thing that we learn in Leviticus that the people later in the Promised Land were practicing, uh, and the Israelites then drove them out or destroyed them because they were practicing such awful things. So so here's Abraham, uh, obviously from a family that's lost their way, but he's not determined by that. I love that. He, he refuses to be defined by whatever family circumstances he inherited. And to me, that's such a rich and helpful thing that, that he, he was not determined. He's influenced. Fair enough. He's influenced. We all are. But he was not determined by it and, and instead determined 
to follow after righteousness in that great verse two, right? Where he says, I, I sought, right? He says, I found that there was greater peace and, and, and things to be had. And he said, so I sought. What a great word, uh, you know, indicating that, that he's not just looking for and he's desiring, he says several times. And, uh, and later he says, know, I sought thee earnestly, right? Yeah, yeah, earnestly, exactly. And later he'll he'll say that, you know, in chapter two, where he, exactly according to verse 12, where he sought thee earnestly and now I have found thee. And it's just this great thing. So, so that first initial thing for me is Abraham overcoming whatever dysfunctions, if you will, in his family are in terms of faith and, and just health, you know, healthy outlooks of things. Uh, and I just and, think that's, that's so a pretty cool. serious dysfunction when your your father is willing to uh, have you killed and, and seemingly participating in that because yeah. you have preached against his religious uh, standpoint and so on. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's more than just, a, a, you know, I don't like what you're saying kind of a thing because it, <laughs> it feels like, OK, you're disturbing the religious order and we need to restore that religious order. But it shows one, it shows his father is actually pretty devout to these other gods. But yeah. that's the problem. He's devout to, in the wrong way to the point where he's willing to kill Abraham for it. That's I, the emotional trauma that you must experience as you're on an altar about to be killed because your father helped you get there to be killed. I cannot imagine what that's like. Right. It's just it's horrific. And, yeah. and this is the beauty in many ways of noticing that kind of dovetails into our second point about what we learn uh, from Abraham is, is how to be charitable, yeah. even to those who, who are the very reason you're in pain and the very reason that you, you're struggling and have had these challenges. And so he's gospel aligned with his dysfunctional family, which is really cool. Uh, so many today feel like the only thing they can do is just completely pull out. And we, we hear of all sorts of, of awful things like, uh, like being disowned, families being disowned and the yeah. things because of, of, of differences of opinion of various kinds. And, and it's so tragic because the very heart of the whole plan, as we've talked, is, is the family and establishing the family of God. And then within the family of God, each of our individual families, and so to see the, the breakdown of our society in many ways that would, that would literally take away that most choice of experiences that we can have together. And so I like the next aspect of, of what we might highlight here in the first couple of chapters of Abraham is that he really works with his dad. He doesn't, doesn't cut him off. I mean, you know, and, and, and so it's really cool because he continues to pray for him and work with him. He lets him travel with him out of Chaldee, the Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran. And, you know, and, and even, even when his dad seems to turn his back on things again, if you go to chapter two, it's, it's just frustrating because Abraham's just gotten married in chapter, in, in chapter two, verse two. And then the Lord says, now you got to go. You got to, again, following the Lord, he says, you got to get out from your country and your kindred. I've got a place. You got to get out from your father's house. And so it's like, okay. And, but, but he says, I, I left in verse four and I took Lot, my brother's son and my wife, Sarai, right? And my father followed after me, right? Onto the land that we den dom uh, denominated Haran. And then what happens is, so it's interesting, get out of your father's house, but his father came with him, yeah. right? He allowed that and he's, he's charitable. He works with him. But then in verse five, it's so frustrating he says, the famine abated a little bit, and my father tarried and dwelt there. 
And there seems to be a clue here as to why his father stayed there and got stuck there was that there were many flocks. And I don't know if that's truly indicative or, or, uh, or I'm over reading that, but, but he, his father turned again to his idolatry and continued in Haran. And you wonder in some ways if that's an indicator of what we might call crisis righteousness. You know, you, yeah. you're going to be you're going to be calling out to the Lord when things are bad. And, you know, but but hey, when things get good again, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I like this other thing. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure if that's what's happening with Tara or not. But well, but it they certainly continued. does seem I mean, the, the way at least that and we only have a translation. I don't know what it was like in the original, but yeah. the way this translation is, it's clear that he, he ties together. Haran or uh, Terra dwelling in Haran as there were many flocks in Haran, right? So it, there is it, a, it reads that way, I think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, but then, of course, he turned again to his idolatry. And so my guess is that there are a lot of elements uh, that are part of that, but uh, certainly some of it seems to be a comfort level, meaning not yeah. moving, keeping the wealth that you have. Uh, and that can't be determined because Abraham's going to take flocks with him. But uh, but it's easier and more comfortable there in Haran, and and it seems to be just this way that we often do of, okay, we 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 got better, we changed, but after a while we go back to where we were comfortable, and that was with his yeah. flocks and with his idolatry, and and I have to also yeah. say, uh, and I and I don't want to, I want to be careful in saying this that I don't say it in a way that that uh, makes people feel like I'm condemning any particular practices because I think there are times we'll have lots of uh, psychiatrists and counselors who would tell us we need to set boundaries and certainly that's true, um, and my guess would be there were times where Abraham had to set some boundaries with things between himself and his father, but there were, it, it must have been painful to overcome those boundaries, but he did in order to have this relationship with his father again. And then he's going to have to set him back up again, or at least, I mean, leaving artificially sets them up, right? But, uh, but he was willing to overcome what must have been really painful in order to try to work with his, his father again. And I'm not suggesting everyone needs to do that immediately or anything. I don't know how long that process was. I don't know what it looked like for him, but, uh, but he did it. He did. You know, to, to that end, I love what you've just said. It, it reminds me of, of Elder Robin's, uh, uh, in many ways, remarkable education week address back in 2017. Uh, he talks uh, in this way, he kind of get, he talks about what forgiving is kind of through what forgiving is not. And this will, this will go right at what you're saying. If I may quote him, he said, forgiving does not mean trusting him again and giving him yet another chance to abuse for example, right. while, while to forgive is a commandment, trust has to be earned and evidenced by good behavior over time. You know, kind of this indicator that, okay, you do it for a little while, right? While you're, but then if you don't stay with it, that, that does, forgiving doesn't have to look like we're just staying with this thing, right? He says, uh, to continue his quote here briefly, forgiving doesn't mean forgiveness of his sins either. Only the Lord can do that based on sincere repentance, right? Right. But what it does is, I love what this next part that he says is he says, forgiveness does not mean giving him another chance to abuse, but it does mean giving him or her another chance at the plan of salvation. Mm. And, you know, that's just, that's so beautiful. And, you know, Absolutely. along those lines, I, I'm reminded that, that these, these two points of being, being transitional and then also charitable uh, dovetail here with with Elder Bednar in an address also in 2017 to the worldwide devotional for 
young adults in September that year. He said, you and I are not trapped in our past experiences. Mm. We're not wholly and totally victims of our present circumstances or captives of our environment. No, he says, the Holy Ghost will teach us all things what we should do, including patterns of family righteousness in which we have not previously participated. Isn't that cool? So Abraham's seeking and he can see there's more and better. How is he seeing that? Well, it wasn't modeled for him. He has to be seeing that through the Holy Ghost, yeah. right? And perhaps some other people around, but he says... Well, these ancient records, he's, he's pulling a lot of his modeling, he says, from the ancient records. So where That's he can't right. find it from his immediate fathers, he finds it from ancestral fathers, just like you and I are doing now by looking at him. That's, that's yes, that exact they, same thing. Anyway, sorry, yes. I interrupted. No, you're so right. And it's there in, in, in the end of Abraham 1 when he talks about these records that he has in verses yeah. 28 and then 31. He's got, he, he's, he is, he's hearkening to those records. Exactly. And that's, that's the beauty of what these records are for us, as you said so beautifully. Uh, Elder Bednar continues and he says, look, it begins with you. There's that transitional character. It begins with you and with the Lord's help, you can do it. He says, some of you have experienced great sorrow in abusive or dysfunctional family relationships, you you spoke tenderly about what it must have been like for Abraham, yeah. for his own father to participate in that. But Elder Bednar says, consequently, you, you may have little or no desire to be linked to the people who inflicted such heartache and suffering. To you, he though says, who have experienced the heartache of a divorce in your family or felt the agony of violated trust, please remember it begins again with you. Hmm. He says, one link in the chain of your generations may have been broken, but the other righteous links and what remains of the chain are nonetheless eternally important. You can add strength to your chain and perhaps even help restore the broken links. That is so beautiful and powerful and so applicable to uh, Abraham's story, but also so applicable to, my guess is, a huge percentage of anyone who's listening right now. Yeah. I mean, we, we're all touched with these things. And, and it reminds me of, you know, Hebrews' description of Jesus as, as the great high priest who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And, and yet he remained without sin. And this is where Abraham dis displays this wonderful charity that he, he works with Terah as far as Terah is able to be worked with. <laughs> and it's, up, it's on Terah, but, but, but Abraham displays this remarkable ability to be aligned with the Lord and allow others to learn and grow and tussle in their own ways. And uh, so I, I love seeing that play out through these verses um, Maybe a third point, you know, we, there's lots to do there, but maybe that just sparks for the, for the listener uh, maybe some further study that they can do as they go through these verses and, and in their prayers to see how that ends up looking in their own lives. But right. I know for my, in my life, I've been greatly blessed by Abraham's example with his dad. And I don't, you know, there's not enough detail there to know everything by any means, but there's enough there to suggest the transition and the versatility and the charity, charity that, uh, that spark me, catalyze me going in prayer and saying, okay, Heavenly Father, what should I do with this family member? How shall I handle this circumstance? And how can we 
how can we preserve family in the midst of all of these challenges and difficulties and harms and hurts? I, I agree. And I know so many people who have had to go through that and are continuing to go through that. And I think it's also worth noting, and, and it's a sad thing to know, but it's worth noting that as great and amazing as Abraham is, and I think the fact that, uh, I mean, there, there's some miracles involved in his being uh, you know, released from this table, an angel comes and saves him and so on. And that's probably part of what gets Terah to repent for a while. Uh, so clearly Abraham is a powerful preacher and, and missionary. He, he converts his own wicked father, but it doesn't last. And yeah. while I, I know that must have been painful for Abraham, it's painful for me to read about, but it's also comforting. Um, we need to, to understand if Abraham in all the work that he did, didn't have lasting success with his father. And I still hope that in the hereafter, and I believe that in the hereafter, his father will have another chance and will will change again. So I don't think the story's over. And I don't think it's over for any of our friends or relatives that we've been working with. But but we can take comfort in the fact that sometimes we don't have success here in this life. Even Abraham didn't have success on what was one of the most important relationships that he really tried for. He didn't have success fully in this life, while I believe that success can come in the next. You know, you said that so perfectly. I just want to kind of confirm what you said with President Lorenzo Snow. Mm-hmm. So so consider this exactly on what you said. And then this is where, again, Abraham's so powerful to me because Lorenzo Snow says, if, if we could read in detail the life of Abraham, or the lives of other great and holy men, we would doubtless find that their efforts to be righteous were not always crowned with success. Yeah. <laughs> he says, hence, we should not be discouraged, exactly your point, Gary, if we should be overcome in a wink moment, uh, but on the contrary, straightway repent of the error, if it, if it is indeed an error on our part, and, uh, and as far as possible, repair it. And then seek God for renewed strength and go on and do better. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so uh, parallel to the point you're making, you know, even as powerful as Abraham was, he, 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 you know, there's, there's a limit to what we can expect on terms of outcomes. Yeah. But we can control our efforts, right? Outcomes are going to be in the hands of the Lord and other people's agency. But, but we can control efforts. We can control ourselves and our agency. And I just love that, that Lorenzo Snow says, yeah, you know, it's, it's easy to pedestalize, should we say, you know, yeah. put up on a high pedestal and, and not always in the best way because then it kind of takes us down to put them up, you know, and it's this odd, you know, zero sum game that, that, that fallen mortals fall into. And it's not true, but uh, because all of us can have all the father has somehow, some mathematically way, we can all have all that the father has. So there must be some new math in the eternities. But in mortality, we tend to think it's a zero-sum game, and there's only 100% to have. And so if you've got a certain percentage, it's taken away from my percentage. And, and so I just think that it's it's so beautiful to, to recognize these prophets uh, teaching us what you had said so well, which is, hey, don't get discouraged. In fact, maybe, maybe this point, and then we'll move to maybe my last uh, idea here with Abraham that impresses me. But, but some years ago, I'm pulling everything from 2017, it appears. There was a, a devotional, it was a Q&A devotional, you probably remember, with Elder Ballard uh, at the Marriott Center with the students oh. there in Provo. And one of the questions was, if I have family or friends who are less active, how, do I, how far do I go in my attempts to bring them back? You know, a, a poignant and a, and, a, and a terribly, you know, understandable question for all of us. 
Well, Elder Ballard's point is this. He says, please don't preach to them. Your family member or friend already knows the church's teachings. They don't need another lecture. What they need, what we all need, is love and understanding, not judging. Share your positive experiences of living the gospel. The most powerful thing you can do is to share your spiritual experiences with family and friends in a non-preachy way. Also, be genuinely interested in their lives, their successes and challenges. Always be warm, gentle, loving, and kind. And I just see Abraham in my mind's eye doing that with his dad, despite his dad not really deserving it, right? And everything. And yet he's not, he's warm, he's gentle, he's loving, he's kind, he's teaching. He is, you know, he is teaching, but, but uh, it's just so cool. I love that because I think we can all relate, yeah. you know, we can all I relate. And, and maybe before we move on, I, I kind of maybe a, a little bit of a meta-analysis of what we're doing here. First of all, I'm, I'm guessing that by now everyone can see what I was talking about when I said that uh, Dr. Allred has this genius of uh, integrating teachings of the modern prophets with uh, ancient prophets, and, and we're just getting a masterclass on that right now. But I also think in terms of just this uh, podcast and its goal, uh, that idea that Abraham looked to the scriptures that he had to find the role models and steer him in life is exactly what we're trying to do right now, specifically with Abraham and the book of Abraham, but in general uh, with this podcast that we are trying to look to the scriptures and the, the stories in them to serve as role models for our life. And if we're going to look at Abraham as a role model, uh, that's what he did. And it's, it's uh, just a fantastic lesson for us all. And, and really the goal behind this podcast. So, so anyway, sorry, to, to your next doing... point then. No, yeah, of course. But, but, but Carrie, just let me thank you for taking the initiative and the effort and the work it takes to put out materials like this. It's beautiful. And I, I'm humbled to be any, any small part of it today. And I'm thrilled. I pray the spirit will, will teach people what they need uh, through anything we're saying. But uh, thank you. I, I, I guess my last point, is it kind of almost in some ways boils down to a question that we can't answer a bit. And the question is, what if your promised land has a famine? Hmm. You know, I mean, that's exactly what Abraham runs into. He's given this promised land and he starts to travel into it there, you know, in chapter two. Uh, and he starts to travel into it and, he, and he, he's moving from place to place. It's as if the famine's following him. And, and it's such an odd thing. You'd think, I mean, again, here it points to those false erroneous expectations that I've had from the traditions perhaps of my fathers is that if you're righteous then your life is good and if you're wicked then your life is bad mm -hmm. and what have we just seen Tara stays in a place and, and loses his religion in a sense because things are good if you will they're good you know and it's Abraham who's being faithful and he goes to his promised land and, and what there's a famine and not just a famine there's idolatrous people in there uh, in this in this promised land and in, in verse and 18 maybe even there, before we started. go there um let, let's just kind of back up and talk about even getting there is not easy i think we underestimate oh. what is asked of abraham uh you know I've, I've often told people when we talk about the three virgins who weren't spared um right they they were sacrificed even though they were righteous like abraham was um and i suspect that abraham was spared because he had a work to do but if Abraham's life was nothing but difficult, it was hard. And then it was hard. And after that, it was hard and hard. And uh, those three virgins 
I think they probably felt like they got the better deal. They went to the next life and said, oh, well, good luck, Abraham. <laughs> this thing's a little easier for us now, right? But but think of, uh, so Abraham has spent his entire life in, in cities. He's an urban dweller. And now he's being asked to give that up, leave behind cultures that he knows and a way of living that he knows. He will be a nomad the rest of his life. That's a drastic change of life. And, and it's a long life he's going to have as a nomad. Um, where he lives in tents. He never lives in a place where he has relatives or any ancestral claim to the land. So he's always in danger of the people around him and having to be careful to, to make sure he has good relationships with people around him. But just the travel, just the travel from uh, whichever Ur he's in down to Haran and then down through uh, modern day Jordan, probably through Jerash and into the Shechem area and so on. And then nonstop travel back and forth as this nomadic lifestyle. Um, that's difficult, very, very difficult. And then as you say, he gets there. Okay, I did all this difficult journey. I'm ready to live this new kind of difficult life. And wait a minute, what's going on in my promised land? It doesn't seem so promising to me. <laughs> it's so, so, so perfectly described. And, uh, and you know, in verse 15, he does talk about that dwelling in tents, which yeah. does juxtapose that urban life that we're, we're all familiar with. And now with this nomadic, you know, dusty, you know, very temporary transition, transitional life. And, uh, and so, and you know, there's a reference to the time in verse 14 that, 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 that cements what you said. Think about this. He, he's gotten married in, in verse two, and then he gets the Abrahamic covenant promises, which of course is exactly the order of things. Uh, he couldn't get those Abrahamic covenant promises until he's married, right? And hence, in the in the ceiling, we learn things about that even nominally with Abraham in yeah. in the temples yeah, today. I, I suspect he entered into phases or aspects of the Abrahamic covenant before, and then just like we do a baptism in the temple. But you're right, we good, get the fullness yes. of the that those Can't, promises as we're sealed and partake of that marriage or that covenant. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect uh, uh, clarification there. And so we get this time referent to it, which as you said so well earlier, verse 14, he, depart, he departed and, and as the Lord had said unto me, lot with me and I, I was 60 and two. He's 62 at this time. So a fairly long life at this point. And he's headed out into with these Abrahamic covenant promise, his wife in verse in verse 16, it says eternity was our covering and our rock and our salvation. They must have gone forward thinking, OK, we've got the promises We're we're going to have this family. We're going to live in this promised land. It's going to be fantastic. And of course, we know by the math, he and Sarah are not going to have their only son. Right. Let alone any children, but their only son for almost an, another four decades. Yeah. And Abraham and so, lives to be almost 200 years old. So it sounds old when he's 62, but most of his yeah, life yeah, is but not. ahead of him. Yeah. That's, that's right. But it, it's quite remarkable, isn't it, when you think, because here again speaks to my expectations or my, my erroneous expectations. Oh, I've, I've gone to the temple. I've entered into these covenants. Yeah. All right. Now we're just going to go forward and be awesome and happy. And what, you know, and then our promised lands end up having famines and idolatrous people and time stamps that we were like, what? You know, when my patriarchal blessing said in due time, you know, I thought, I, I don't think I like that language. You know, there was a part of me that was like, no, 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 not in due time. I want it now. I want it, you know, yeah. 
And I think yeah, we can all relate to few weeks at most, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, sure. We'll wait a few days or weeks here, maybe. Uh, Plus, we all so watched just all really... these Disney movies growing up, and we really kind of expect once we hit uh, that whole marriage thing that it's happily ever after, and we're done with the tough stuff, which doesn't that's, turn that's out right. to be the case. But yeah, <laughs> you know, and and yet it's such a beautiful thing when we recognize that while that is true, if we see the journey as as the picking up of the character attributes and perfections, mm. right? That are required for the eternity. Mm. Then, then we can learn to embrace. We may not always love, <laughs> but we can learn to embrace these challenges in a way that Abraham and Sarah did, which then affected the character that they have. If we're ever going to sit down with all our holy fathers, as the Book of Mormon is fond of saying, the teshuva and the yeshuva, right, of, of, of recounseling, being reconciled, is to, is to literally to kind of view it as to sit down in council with people like Abraham and Sarah, as the lectures on faith indicate, um, we're going to need to have similar journeys as they had. There's no other way. You can't you can't borrow the oil, if you will, to uh, to pull on the, the Lord's parable from others. You, you you have to go buy it at the market yourself, and and that takes travel and time, and you got to earn the money to do that, and, and you get the oil yourself. There's no other way to get it. And so, yeah, yeah the and I guess to be with God doesn't have shortcuts, right? It's just a it, long it just doesn't because it's not geographical. Right. right. It's, it's not simply geographical. It's almost as if we could say, well, hey, when things get tough, we'll head back to Missouri. Elder Packer was fond of talking about about no such thing as geographical security. Yeah. He says, if you don't fix it in such a way that you're in good company when you're alone or okay. with your family, he says, there's there's no place that's going to work for you. You know, and um, and, I, and I, I can't help but remember what Joseph Smith said. He, you know, he was always responding to people's questions and things. And, and somebody said, well, you know, he says, are you sure that you guys are the ones that are going to be going to, to heaven? And he says, well, I don't, I don't know for sure. He says, but if it turns out that we end up going to hell, he says, well, we'll turn out all the devils and we'll make a heaven out of it. <laughs> you know, and it, it's just, it's that idea of like a holy place, stand in a holy place there are holy places geographically. It's true. We say we sacralize them. We we will you know dedicate them, etc. But really, the ultimate holy place is where God resides. Why? Because is it's it's where He lives? No, it's because it's where He is. It's that place is holy because that's where He is, yeah, he and wherever Jesus holy. is, right? And so so we can live similarly that wherever we are. Is becomes a holy place because, like Joseph said, we'll turn out the devils. We'll 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 uh, you know take the take the slums out, if you will, yeah. of wherever we go. Well, maybe a last thought that that impressed me as I was reading through verses, you know, this journey seventeen, eighteen. Nine, this is chapter two of Abraham, where he, as you did so well a minute ago, kind of take him down through uh, Jershon, you know, in verse eighteen into the plains of Moray. And then uh, he's building altars and he's having experiences with the Lord. You know, uh, everywhere he goes, he builds altars, which is really cool. Yeah. And uh, in verse 20, Abraham builds another altar and he goes down further south and west to Bethel and I. And then um, as he's going along, he's, he's, he's being devout. He's building altars. He's offering sacrifices. He's, he's staying close to the Lord. But then, and this is all taking, you know, these are, 
you know, miles and miles of, of, of territory to cover. And as he gets to verse 21, something really intriguing happens. He says, and I, Abraham, journeyed going on still towards the south. Uh, and we don't know if that gets him down into the Negev or where, where exactly we're talking, how far south this gets him. Yeah, and I, I but, suspect that's because uh, the word Negev kind of means southward, and, and it's often yeah. used that way in Genesis. So I suspect that's what it means, but I don't know. It, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Great point. And so, so, and again, this is these are these are you know several hundred miles they're traveling down now, yeah. and and what happens is he says there's a continuation of a famine in the land, and in fact, at the bottom of the verse it says the famine became very grievous. Right. So here he is traveling from the top to the bottom of the promised land, and it's it's all not working, you know, and. And I just love that in the middle of this verse, here he's had all these spiritual interactions with the Lord. And they've been pretty dramatic. You know, angels have come. The Lord himself has appeared. He's having, you know. But here in verse 21, this really interesting phrase, I, Abraham, concluded yeah. to go down into Egypt. There's no revelation there that we know of. What it appears is that he's going and he's going, he's building altars, he's staying close to the Lord, and the Lord's telling him a few things. I mean, the last thing he told him was in verse 19, is that, yeah, I know there's idolatrous people here, but this is your land. He doesn't tell him how or when or, you know, he just says, yep, this is your land. And the last thing we hear God saying to Abraham in these several verses is, is just a confirmation that, yep, you're doing the right thing. It's going to happen. And, and, and I, I think it's interesting, unto thy seed will I give this land. That has to introduce some question to Abraham. And we know in the, in the uh, Genesis again, it talks about, well, actually, the people here aren't ready for destruction. So it's going to be a while before everyone gets. So he, he probably has this, okay, I came here and wait, so is it me or is it not? I mean, it's just a whole lot of uncertainty that he's dealing with. And he'll later wonder if it's Abimelech, his servants, Right, is trusted yeah. right hand man's son that's going to be his covenant son. It's going to go that long that he's going to. So, so I love this moment here in verse twenty one because he says, "I concluded." Why do I love this? Because I think we've all been in situations where we had a rich um, mountaintop experience where the Lord really told us something, and we were like, "Okay, good. I'm going to do what the Lord said, and He told me this. I'm going to do that." And then as we go about doing it it's almost as if heaven gets quiet and we go through this period of time where it may even feel like we don't even feel the spirit and we're praying and we feel like we need direction. We're not getting direction. And we're thinking, you know, in fact, it, let me quote Elder Scott. This is Elder Richard G. Scott from his landmark address on prayer mm. uh, called Using the Supernal Gift of Prayer. This was April 27, 2007. He says, what do you do when you've prepared carefully and you see Abraham doing that, and you've prayed fervently, man, is Abraham ever doing that? You've waited a reasonable time, <laughs> gone through the length and breadth of the, you know, the promised land, and you still don't feel an answer. Elder Scott surprisingly and insightfully says, you may want to express thanks when that occurs, for it's an evidence of his trust. When you're living worthily and your choice is consistent with the Savior's teachings and you need to act, proceed with trust. So when he concludes to go down into Egypt, it's cool because the Lord is saying, what do you want to do? 
how do you want to handle this? What you, yeah, you're right. There's a famine in your promised land. What you going to stay here and starve or what are you going to do about that? You know, and he, he gives him right. Some autonomy gives him some well needed opportunity to use his agency. So when he concludes, he does so right. Not because God won't tell him necessarily, not because there's not a right or wrong answer. There may be ideal answers. There could have been other places perhaps who knows, but it does seem like the Lord wants to get him to Egypt, but he doesn't tell him that. He doesn't seem to indicate that to him. He lets him conclude. And then when he does, I love the next part. It says, when I was come near. And again, that's going to be another bunch of miles and a lot of time that he's just working on his own conclusion that I'm going to go into Egypt. Now, interestingly, is when the Lord says, okay, I got a message for you. Yeah. And he gives him some very important insight into the culture uh, of the Egyptians. If, if Abraham didn't know it, he's telling him, here's how you're going to have to handle this with, with Sarai, your wife, and, and the Pharaoh and, and everything there. So, and then so a little maybe later one more thought. Say, and while you're there, I, I have some stuff for you to do. I, I'm going to have you preach oh, the gospel, yeah. right? But that all comes yes. later. Yeah. All later, Abraham could would not necessarily have known that unless he's remembering clear back when he was saved and that you're you're going to be who I'm going to make my name known to the nations, uh, you know. But I, I just love how the Lord was quiet and then right when he needs it, like just in time, he gives him some specific information. Mm -hmm. And so coming back to Elder Scott, he says, as you're sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit, one of two things will certainly occur and then he says, at the appropriate time. Hmm. Either the stupor of thought will come indicating an improper choice or the peace or the burning of the bosom will be felt confirming your choice is correct. And he says, when you're living righteously and you're acting with trust, God will not let you proceed too far without a warning impression if you have made the wrong decision. Or in Abraham's case, You've made a decision we can work with, and you need this further information mm. to be able to go forward. That's really good. And I just, I just love that. Brigham Young once said, uh, he says, if you don't know the will of, of my father and what he requires of me in, in a certain transaction, if I, if I ask him to give me wisdom concerning any requirement in my life or in regard to my own course or that of my friends, my family, my children, or those that I have to preside over, and I get no answer from him, Okay, so I think we've all been there. He says, and then we do, like Abraham, conclude, right? I'm, I'm riffing here with uh, President Brigham Young, but he says, he, uh, returning to his quote, he says, and we do the very best that my judgment will teach me. Mm -hmm. Brigham Young says, God is bound to own and honor that transaction, and he uh, will do so to all intents and purposes. That's fantastic. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just uh, maybe add this, and part of the reason why I think this is such a powerful topic, um, I, I think one of the things that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints struggle with the most, and, and not like in terms of testimony or something, but just one of the greatest challenges in our life is receiving direction from God, getting answers to prayers and knowing what we should do. And that's because it's supposed to be a stretching opportunity. It's a, a stretching experience, right? But I know... Um, when I've served in, in Bishop Ricks and BYU wards and in Bishop Ricks and other places, this is one of the most frequent questions people have. How do I get an answer to this? And it's tough. And, and, uh, and so I think Abraham is a fantastic model here. And I love that you brought up Elder Scott. I would say that talk in, in 2007, I think it was, and one he gave that was similar in, in 1990. I'm pretty sure it was 1990. 
are two of the most powerful talks ever on uh, receiving answers to prayers. And if that's something that uh, someone in our audience is is uh, looking for help on, I would go to those talks by Elder Scott and this one by Brigham Young that you've just talked about, and, and also look to Abraham as an example. I love it. You know, I might I might add to that great list there. Uh, president Bednar, Elder Bednar, I always tell president because I was lucky to be at BYU-Idaho when he was he was president of the university, but Elder Bednar in his evening with the general authority for the church mm-hmm. educational system employees, this is in 2020, he had a he, he had a little audience with him and they were talking and this subject that you said, which is what all of us wrestle with, this subject came up and he his whole address really gets after, don't over checklist, don't get into the four things and the five things, and, you know, and he says, he says, wait a minute, we, we shouldn't be trying to rec- recognize it when it comes. We should be recognizing what happens that causes it to leave, right? So the assumption can be like, oh, I'm not getting an answer. I'm not getting God telling me the next line, the next step, where's the next precept? And when that happens, the temptation, I think the adversary comes with so strongly is, oh, well, you you must not be praying right. Uh, there must be something wrong on your end. You know, still communication model. There's some noise in between here, and, and what, what is it? And he or can God's even go as far as with you or something. Yeah, yes, and God's not pleased with you. He can go even as far as to tempt you to think that well, maybe God doesn't even live, and I just made up yeah. those earlier answers and yeah. my earlier experiences. You know, and he can he can just make hay with that. But instead, Elder uh, Bednar says, "Look, it ought to be with you every." All, he says every nanosecond. He says, but if a person's doing his or her best, you don't have to be perfect. But if we're doing our best and we're not committing serious transgression, we can count on the Holy Ghost guiding us. And he says, so I think sometimes we start from the disadvantage and thinking I have to gear up to recognize it when it's just there all the time. In fact, he talks about it as living in Revelation. We're living in Revelation. And what's odd about this, I think, for most of us is that, again, that erroneous expectation is that the Holy Ghost has got to be positively communicating to us all the time. Instead, the Holy Ghost may do what happened with Abraham, allow some time for him to grow and learn as he works to conclude some things. If we, if we had the expectation that God is going to literally hold us by the hand and guide us every second, then it's God's life. It's not my life. Then yeah. it's God's growth and it's God's experiences. It's not mine. Do you know? And and so you'd say, but, but, but wait, but I might make a mistake. And God's saying, yeah, you surely will make mistakes. And it's we can work with that. We have an atonement that can help cover that of Jesus Christ. We have your elder brother who loves you and gave enough of his incredible, incalculable, eternal, infinite gift to, to be able to handle mistakes, errors of judgment, even sins. And he says, we can work with that because if we don't, you can never become like me. You can never obtain your own judgment. You can never obtain, if you will, what Paul calls the mind of Christ. Yeah. And, and so I think this living in Revelation is a healthy recognition of when the, the Spirit and the Lord deliberately don't tell us because it's the only way we can become like them. That's beautiful. That's beautiful stuff. Uh, I'm so grateful for that. Uh, thank you. And all right, we have other stuff that we'll have to visit about another time, I think. But uh, wow, this is 
uh, uh, this has just been great for me, so powerful and, and so helpful. Uh, and I've, I've studied the story lots of times and thought about a lot of these things. And still, the way you explain it and put it, it seems so real to me and so applicable to my life. And I think everyone will have that experience. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. My honor, my complete honor. Anytime I'm with you, Carrie, I'm upgraded big time. So thank well, you. I, I feel the same. And that's what the gospel's about, right? We all edify each other and we're, that's how you know who your true friends are when you're better because you're around them. So uh, thank you for that. And, and of course, uh, God is the one who does that more than uh, anyone else. When we have the spirit with us, that's when we're at our best. And uh, I think that's part of what Elder Bednar was talking about in that uh, address as well that you were just referencing. Uh, that that we, yeah. we have the spirit with us more than we recognize. And, and as we recognize it more, we'll benefit more. But, uh, and I hope that happens to everyone as they uh, read this story of Abraham and uh, it becomes more real to them. Hopefully this has helped it become more real and thus more applicable and thus more powerful in your life uh, and helps you come through the prophets to Christ and back to God. Uh, so thank you very much for that phil and we'll have to visit another time and and get more insights from you about when the scriptures became real to you and allow you to bless the lives of others as they become real for them so thank you love it thank you carrie appreciate it for all the great things you're doing and to our audience we, we hope you have a wonderful day uh you know like subscribe whatever it is that you can do to help spread the, the word for other people to have their lives touched by the scripture because after all the scriptures are real